0: Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the podcast, Religions of the World and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is James Holt, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about um, Judaism and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. so the first three sections, or the first three episodes of our podcast, explored some issues to do with what is religion, why should we engage in interfaith, work why should we learn about other faiths and also in terms of religious freedom so in some ways those first three sessions were a theoretical background and today marks the beginning if you like of the exploration of individual world religions and and how we as latter-day saints perhaps sit in relation to them and what we can learn from them as well so as we begin this it's always useful to have A reminder of the ground rules really that I think are important for us as Latter-day Saints when we begin any engagement with other faiths. And the first one is that we don't neglect our own faith and practice. So we study our scriptures, we say our prayers, we go to church, we partake of the sacrament, we study the words of the prophets, we go to the temple, because really I think it's really important that when we work with and we study and we learn about other faiths that we are strongly rooted firmly rooted within the restored gospel and for me as I've mentioned before there are two kind of non-negotiables within all of this as we begin to to reflect on where um, other religions stand in the plan of salvation and everything else and that is that we're honest and we 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 stand firm with the atonement of our saviour Jesus Christ and also with regards to the first vision of Joseph Smith and, and the resultant legacies of both, because uh, as two pillars really that kind of um, determine our doctrine and, and, and guide us where we should be. But using that as a background, I think the next three stages are really important as well, which we appreciate the truth found in other religions. So as we explore Judaism today, we're going to explore some things that I think are really important and that helped me understand my own faith. But also at the same time, as one of the principles, we, we ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies what it believes. So I'm not about to provide a caricature of Judaism at all. I'm not going to look at polemics that perhaps um, argue against aspects of Judaism. It's about Understanding them on their own terms, and when I've written um, the books that I've written about religions, one of the criticisms that has been, um, I guess, thrown at me in one particular from one particular reviewer, was the argument was that I tended not to be critical, but I I presented religions as they would be understood by a believer, and I actually think that's an important thing of what we do. But even with this, I very much know that I'm going to only explore certain aspects of Judaism this is going to take maybe 45 minutes an hour and there's only a very small number of Jewish beliefs I can explore only very small expressions of Judaism that I can explore as well so please remember the messiness of religion the lived reality of religion for of Judaism for for many Jews will be different to the way I portray it Um, so I'm I'm kind of going for the fuzzy outline of the blind men and the elephants if you like when I talk about the various things We also leave room for holy envy because in doing this, we're open to develop our own religious practice and understanding, and holy envy is really important and I think will serve as the catalyst or the springboard for some of the things that I'm going to talk about today. It will also hopefully help us provide a background that will help us um, to help Jews live their religion because uh, we live in a world where antisemitism has been a part of history for ever and a day, but it is also on the rise in the UK at the moment. So we need to be very conscious of being an ally um, for Jewish people and to enable them to live their religion and practice their religion as safely as they can. Now, I'm going to share with you, before I begin and, and, and start talking about Judaism as a whole, A couple of cautions, really, or a a couple of things that we need to be aware of. uh, And sometimes we fall into these pitfalls, if you like, when we talk about Judaism. Because as members of the church, we have somewhat of a shared history with Jews. So you look at the Old Testament and um, you look at the Tanakh, the the Torah, Nevim, Nevim and Ketuvim, which is the Jewish holy book which Latter-day Saints would call the Old Testament, Jews would call the Tanakh. And that is a shared history. You look at the stories, you look at the things that are there, and they are shared. And so therefore, because we understand what we believe based on those stories, we might also transfer that same thinking across onto Jews, and it's not just us that do this. Uh, One of my responsibilities is for one of the awarding organizations in in England is I am responsible for all of the religious studies exams um, that children sit at the age of 16 and 18. And when I read the Jewish papers and they ask questions about certain things, it's very obvious that either the teacher or the student themselves have Christianized Judaism. So let me provide an example. So on the GCSE specification, there is something called uh, something about the Messiah and ju- children who tend to do Judaism will have also done Christianity. And so will have explored Jesus as the Messiah within Christianity. And so I will often read about how um, Jews were looking forward for a suffering servant based on Isaiah, I think, 55. So a Christian understanding of the Messiah has been read back into the Old Testament. Or into the Tanakh and that's interesting because um, for example that's what Paul did um, when he became a Christian is, is he kind of traced and, and saw how Jesus was the fulfillment of that and Matthew did that in his gospel as well but at the same time it's not necessarily the belief that most Christians have yes many Jew, uh, many Jews have excuse me so many Jews will believe and look forward to the time of a Messiah. And Clive Lautner said, Jewish teaching is not particularly clear about how this will all come about or even what would bring the Messiah or speed up his arrival. There are two views on this within the tradition. And for most Jews, the idea of the Messiah is simply used as a means to spur them on to try to make the world a better place or to provide them with hope when they are subject to cruelty and persecution. Most Jews rarely think about the Messiah. Now that's really interesting because I think... um, it, it seemed to be the differentiator between Judaism and Christianity, but actually it's not as significant and perhaps it's not understood in the same way as we understand the, the purpose and life of Jesus. But there are other things as well. So one of the things that I'm, I'm less surprised now, but I was surprised um, when I began um, working and, and speaking with Jews, Is their view of the afterlife? Because I always imagined it was fairly Christian in nature. There was heaven and there was hell. But actually, when I speak to Jews and say, okay, what what do you believe about the afterlife? The most common answers I get is, I don't know. Um, Yeah, I've never really thought about that. And within Judaism, there are lots of answers. So there are people who believe in resurrection, there are people who believe in reincarnation, there are people who believe that life ends at death. Jews don't really think about life after death as such. You will meet some Jews that do, but many don't, because it's just about keeping the commandments or the mitzvot because of they've been given by God. They are God's chosen people, and so therefore we live the mitzvot. And actually, that's quite a liberating thing um, for me to think about, is keeping the commandments without a hope of reward. Uh, Not that that won't happen, but just the idea that you're living it because that is the way that God has commanded it. Um, And I think sometimes, just reflecting on my experience as a Latter-day Saint, whenever I'm asked why I keep the word of wisdom, it's not because of the health benefits, because some people will argue with those, but it's because God has asked me to do so. So rather than a a hope for um, a blessing. The other one as well is sometimes we Christianize stories, and, and an example that I've seen of that is with regards to Moses. And so at the, with the last plague, um, the Hebrews were asked to paint blood on their doorposts. Now, you can read some storybooks and even hear the story told where they paint a cross. But, and obviously, we know that, that the story foreshadows Christ. It's, a, it's kind of a type of Christ where Christ becomes the Passover lamb. But the idea that there was a cross painted is nowhere within the Tanakh, is nowhere within the Old Testament. So we need to be careful about not Christianizing things in in that way. Um, There are lots of things that we do as Latter-day Saints that do uh, use the Old Testament to point towards Christ, and that's great. But it's not a way um, that Jews would understand it. And also in terms of, of, of another thing that we do, sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we, we understand Judaism through the lens of the first century, through the time that Jesus lived. So essentially through the period of second, what's called Second Temple Judaism. This is from the year 515 BCE or BC to 70 CE or AD. And Paul, uh, Tom Wright, who is a, uh, a biographer of Paul and a great New Testament scholar, he said, that we need to just kind of pull back from the idea that the religion that we understand of Judaism today is, is not the same as, as Judaism in the time of Jesus. And uh, let me just read this to you from, from uh, Tom Wright. In Paul's day, religion consisted of God-related activities that along with politics and community life held a culture together and bound the na- members of that culture to its divinities and to one another. In the modern western world religion tends to mean god-related individual beliefs and practices that are supposedly separable from culture, politics and community life. For Paul religion was woven in with all life. For the modern western world it's separated from it. So when in what is probably his earliest letter Paul talks about advancing in Judaism beyond any of his age, the word Judaism refers not to a religion but to an activity, the zealous propagation and defense of the ancestral way of life. So We just need to be careful that we're not reading first century Judaism into Judaism today. And there will be echoes of it and there will be similar practices of some kind, but it's different. And that becomes evident when we look at um, a timeline of Jewish history. So, as I mentioned, Second Temple Judaism essentially finished around 70 AD, 70 CE, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so when we look at that, um, Jews were having, after this point, Jews were having to come to terms with a religion or a way of life, if you like, that wasn't centered on the temple and didn't focus necessarily on the land of Israel because they lived in the diaspora. So this kind of began um, a time of what's known as rabbinic Judaism and, and and kind of the timings of that possibly started a couple of centuries later than that but this is a time where people are trying to work out what it means and so rabbinic Judaism is essentially a discussion really about what the law means and Looks at the written and the oral law that is available, and discussions begin. And these ideas begin to be written down in things called like the, the Mishnah and the Gemara, which eventually becomes the Talmud. Um, and and this is where people are, are debating and arguing and, and discussing what it is to be Jewish and how to live the mitzvot that were for a particular time and place in the world in which they now lived, separated from. Israel and separated from the, from the temple. Um, some of you may have seen the film Yentl and, and whenever I read about rabbinic Judaism, it's kind of some of those arguments um, between some of those young scholars that kind of come to mind where they're arguing based on particular uh, rabbis and on particular authorities. But this is, this is how Judaism has developed over the years is based very much on these things. And then developments began to um, happen as well in in later history. So we have things like in uh, 1736, the establishment of the Hasidic um, movement. So this is only less than 300 years ago. We then have kind of reformed Judaism as well, where people are um, interpreting law. So modern Judaism is the inheritor certainly of um, rabbinic, and other forms of Judaism um, and Second Temple Judaism, but we have to recognise that it's been through quite a lot. Um, not only the uh, not only those developments in teaching and in practice to, to make it kind of work on a global level, but also in terms of um, the persecution that they suffered and, and everything else that kind of have have somewhat shaped um, reactions and and. How Jews have have tended to become part of society and things, which we'll talk about later. And I think this is really interesting because um, to define Judaism is difficult. So yes, um, Jews would consider um, themselves um, and Israel as, as God's chosen people, inheritors of God's covenant. But there's an author called Matt Green who's written a book called Jewish. And it's Jew with, with ish in brackets because he, by his own admission, is not the most observant of Jews. But in this book, he says that Jews aren't really a race is an argument beloved by racists and anti-Semites alike. But a rare and adjacent truth is that Judaism isn't really a religion. You might think it's semantics, but I'd argue it's mechanics. Look under the bonnet of most major religions and you'll find a system of beliefs that's at least internally consistent. The clue's in the name their faiths. But the engine for Judaism isn't faith, it's doubt. What keeps the vehicle moving isn't the belief that it will, but the heat generated from a thousand simultaneous disagreements. This might sound glib or pedantic, but it's evidently one of Judaism's most foundational facts. Our most sacred text isn't the Torah, the purported word of Hashem, another name for God, but the Talmud, a multi-volume companion text that interprets, expands, and comments. Essentially, the Talmud is marginalia, a conversation now, beneath the line comments section. What Judaism essentially amounts to is a 4000 year old argument. Now, I read that. And when I kind of considered that, I'm thinking that's not the Judaism I understand. Because, for example, um, I would argue that the Torah um, in the conversations I've had is the most, most sacred text. But obviously, from Matt Green's experience as a Jew, I can't write that off. And so it's interesting to look at the different expressions of Judaism. And there are things that tie Jews together. So, for example, tonight or today, we're going to look at the covenant a little bit. We're going to talk about the law and we're going to talk about something called Shekinah as well, which I think are beliefs that kind of unite Jews. But when we consider who is Jewish, we have... um, the, not the idea, but Judaism is a race, and it's, it's um, a racial identity, if you like. And we can see this in, for example, the Holocaust. We can see that it's not identified as a religious group because, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses who wore the purple triangle, who were targeted within the Holocaust, were able to escape punishment, if you like, or um, the torture and everything else that went on by recanting their faith. This wasn't an option available to Jews. This was something that it was racial, so therefore there was no way to recant that process or re- recant that decision, even if they wanted to. But we look at who is a Jew, and, and there are secular Jews, people who have just grown up. So I'm not, I am not—I don't know 100% um, people's practices and people's observances, but there's people like Natalie Portman, uh, perhaps like um, Albert Einstein and others who are Jewish, but are not necessarily very observant. But then there's others, people like Mayim Balik, who um, played Amy, not Amy, who was in the Big Bang Theory, I can't remember the name of Catra at the top of my head, but she's a very observant Jew, and you can see her on YouTube and on Instagram talking about how she's celebrating things. Um, Ehrlich has identified that Judaism has three essential elements, God, Torah, and law. The Torah refers to the law given to Moses and Israel can seem to be a land, but also includes an historic political identity, a people, a nation, a belief system, a social group and a culture. They're not isolated from each other, these elements, but they interlink with each other to form the religious experience. So one of the most important aspects of Judea- Judaism is the law or the mitzvot, which are a collection of commandments that are found in the Torah, the first five five books, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those books, you will find 613 commandments, or 613 laws, or mitzvot. And this very much forms the basis for Jewish living. These mitzvot were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments that he received. But in a Jewish worldview, it was the 613. And so because these laws, these mitzvot have been given by God, then they should be lived. Now, interestingly, when we when we look at the mitzvot, there are a number of them that are to do with the temple. And so it's impossible to live those today. And when we come to look at aspects of of differences between expressions of Judaism, Their interpretation of the law can be slightly different as well. But essentially, the mitzvot form kind of the basis for Jewish belief and practice. There is um, a a belief in something called Pichot Nefesh, which is the idea that uh, the sanctity of life, life takes precedence over everything else. And so you can break a mitzvot to save a life. Um, so that, that's kind of an interesting thing in terms of, um, there is a debate surrounding this, but for example, the use of um, parts of a pig's heart to in a heart transplant or a heart operation. Now, obviously today they can now make synthetic ones, but it was an interesting discussion at the time. And if you've ever watched Fiddler on the Roof, you will realize that at the beginning, where is singing about tradition, that tradition forms a very big part of what Judaism is. And and we look at some of the quotes, so um, maybe listen to the song, it's very interesting, but also listen to the passage before where Tevye begins to discuss things. One of them, he says, you may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you, I don't know. But he also says, because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. So we look at this kind of idea of tradition, and it is a supporting pillar of of Judaism. But I think it's also, I don't mean problematic, but if you watch the film Fiddler on the Roof, it's very obvious that, yes, the film begins with this idea that tradition is what binds the community together and keeps the community going. But watch the film and tradition is challenged. So even at the wedding where um, someone wants to dance, a boy wants to dance with a girl, they say, well, it is written that you should not. Well, where is it written? And the tradition is overcome and there's other elements of it. So yes, it's about the basis of Judaism being this tradition, but it's also about the changing of that tradition. And maybe that's where kind of we see the differences between Orthodox and reform. So there are traditionally seen to be two types of Jew, Orthodox and reform. I don't think that kind of holds water to be honest, because there isn't this dichotomous split where where Orthodox are religious and reform are non-religious. they're just they interpret the law and tradition in different ways. Within Orthodox, you will have different types of Orthodox Jew. you'll have um, Ashkenazi, of which there are different groups, including um, Haredi and um, Hasidic. Within reform, there are are different as well. And and, and speaking to colleagues and friends, it would seem that the differences between reform Jews and the the differences between Orthodox is different in America than it is in, in Britain. But again, it's about this interpretation of law. So let me just use one example to show how Um, Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews will approach perhaps a similar issue. And one of it is to do with how far you can travel travel and with what you can um, do on the Sabbath. And so there's laws about how much um, money you can carry in your pocket before it becomes kind of a job or work. Um, You're not allowed to drive because it's an act of creation when the spark um, is made. You're not allowed to push a trolley or a wheelchair and different things. And so what reformed Jews have done is they've looked at the traditions and the laws that are part of Judaism and thought, okay, those need, as the word says, reforming. We need to reinterpret the laws of God based on the situation, which is how they were given. So they were given in specific times, and so they were interpreted in, for example, the Talmud, at a particular time and place, but we can we can reinterpret those for today. And so you will find Reformed Jews who are happy to walk for a distance and are happy to drive and different things. Whereas with, with Orthodox, with some Orthodox Jews, there is a different approach. And so in Manchester, where I live, there is something called an Arab. You can find them around the world. There's certainly one in, in Manhattan um, and, and, and in other places. But essentially, this is a fence that goes round um, an area. So the one in Manchester is very big, actually. Um, some of the fence will be already there. So, for example, it covers the outskirts of a place called Heaton Park, and that has a natural—not a natural wall, but it has a wall already there. And any place where there isn't a wall, maybe when it goes across the road and different things, there will be a wire very high up, um, which is part of the Erov. And it's an unbroken barrier, if you like, though, as I say, it might be a wire in the, in the, in the air. It's an unbroken barrier around this area. And on a Friday before Shabbat starts, there, is, uh, people, there are people who walk around and check that the Erov um, is unbroken. Because what this does is it makes essentially the air of your back garden. And that means that you're able to walk further, carry more, push a trolley, push a wheelchair. And interestingly, the arrow covers um, North Manchester General Hospital as well, so that people can visit there and can push wheelchairs and different things. So it's based on the same mitzvah and the same law. It's just been interpreted in different ways. So reformed Jews have said, okay, well, this needs updating. Whereas it would seem that members of, uh, some members of the Orthodox community have said, okay, no, we need to find a way to live this law in today's society. And we found that by the use of an Arab. So it, it, it's very interesting. Now, as I was discussing these issues with my institute class, one of the things that came up was the idea of tradition and what that means within the church because there is doctrine there is there are things that that don't change but then there's things that are unwritten rules and are traditions that some people hold firmly to but actually are are not anything anywhere written and and we don't have to do those so I can think of of two examples um, from my time serving as a bishop over a number of years. The first one was when I was a very young bishop. We had a, a, a sister, a lady who was close who was the closing speaker. And as she was speaking, I got a note from my organist who said, Who's going to speak after Emma? So nobody, not a problem. And talking to him afterwards, he was under the impression that it was an unwritten rule that women should never close a meeting. I said, I was very polite, but essentially that's, that's nonsense. There's, there's no reason why a woman cannot close a meeting or be the final speaker. That's just, but it had become a tradition and an unwritten rule in kind of his lifetime. And then there was another, and I was leaning on a a sacrament table. I was just leaning on it. There was nothing on there. I was just leaning on it. And someone came across um, and told me off because um, the sacrament table was, was, was sacred. And it's like, "Mm, don't think it is. It's an important thing that we use, and I wouldn't stand on it necessarily, but I don't think there's any issue with me putting my hand on it. And and so we have to be very careful of the traditions that come in with no justification. It's like the scene at Fiddler on the Roof, where you want to say, well, where is it written? Show me. What is it that I, what am I not supposed to do in this this area? There are other examples as well um, that we can perhaps think of. We then consider the concept of God within Judaism as well. And and oftentimes um, the name of God is sacred and so will not be repeated. And so you will often hear Jews refer to God as Hashem, um, the Almighty, Adonai or Lord. Um, But YHWH is the name of of God within scripture um, based on his interaction with Moses at the burning bush but the name is so sacred. You may even see in English um, the name of God written G-D, because that would perhaps be the way that um, YHWH would be written without the vowels, because the name of God is so sacred. And there is a debate about that, to be honest, because, um, in essence, um, speaking to... um, a friend, He was saying that God in English is a translation anyway, so isn't actually his name, so he had no problem. But there are others who kind of do get hung up. So I tend to try and use the Almighty um, when I'm writing about God within Judaism. But God is um, one. Um Judaism is a monotheistic religion. He is all-powerful. He's created everything. everything is under his control. he's He's transcendent. He's above and beyond everything but he's also imminent, which means that he is um, involved in every aspect of a Jew's life and can be experienced throughout the entire world. Looking at Maimonides, who was a medieval writer, he, he lived in the, around the 12th century, um, CE or AD, the first five of the 13 principles of Maimonides are The creator is the creator and guide of everything, only he creates. The creator is a perfect unity. The creator has no body, is incorporeal, and cannot have physical comparison. The creator is the first and the last. The creator is the only one to whom should be prayed. And so this very much does um, establish the nature of the Almighty for Jews. He was just codifying what has always been taught, Uh, well, for the majority of time within Judaism. And so it's a very monotheistic. However, there is a feminine aspect of the divine. And there is an aspect of of the Almighty called Shekinah, um, where the Almighty is not separate to the world. He doesn't simply live in heaven. The Almighty is close to everything and everyone he's made. He's omnipresent. Throughout the scriptures, the Almighty's involvement with the people of Israel is very evident and shows the concern that he has for his people. Jews would see that this closeness is evidenced today in the lives of Jewish people around the world. The word to describe this closeness of God is Shekinah. This simply means that God is present everywhere. And it's symbolized by a pillar of light or a pillar of fire. Um, So you will remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and also when he guided the um, Hebrews after... um, their exodus from Egypt, it was in this pillar of light. So this will tend to be representative of um, the presence of the Lord or the presence of the Almighty. And so, um, for example, when you go to a Jewish synagogue or shul, you will often see what's called a Tamid, which is an everlasting light. It should always be on. If it's not, it's not the end of the world, but, it, but it, it's a light that's always on. And this is symbolic of the Shekinah or the presence of the Lord. And if we look at some of the um, Talmud, it talks about the Shekinah. So um, Perkei Avot says, while a person or people study Torah, the Shekinah is among them. So when they're studying scriptures, the the presence of the Lord is there. Whenever ten are gathered for prayer, there the Shekinah rests. When three sit as judges, the Shekinah is with them. The Shekinah dwells over the headside of, of the sick man's bed. Wheresoever they were exiled, the Shekinah went with them. The Shekinah rests on that man neither through gloom, nor through sloth, nor through frivolity, nor through levity, nor through talk, nor through idle chatter, but only through a matter of joy in connection with their mitzvah or commandment." Now I look at all of those as the Latter-day Saint, and I think, oh, I've heard some of those before. So while a person or people study Torah, the Shekinah is among them. Well, we know that we are able to feel of the Holy Spirit, if you like, or the presence of the Lord when we are studying scriptures. Um, we look at the last one, which was uh, the Shekinah rests on man neither through gloom nor sloth nor frivolity. And, and we begin to think about, well, um uh, the Doctrine and Covenants talks about loud laughter and how that's unseemly. And so we can, I've written some stuff about humour somewhere else, but it's it's interesting that essentially we can begin as Latter-day Saints, I think, to, I don't know, articulate the Shekinah as perhaps a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Maybe, no one's ever done that, but it's just the idea that the presence of the Lord is always with us to guide to strengthen, to help. And so we look at that within Judaism and think, hmm. And so examples of Shekinah from the scriptures include the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt and the leadership of Moses, or Esther who served the, saved the Jewish people from persecution and death in Persia. And these events are remembered today uh, in Passover and Purim, which we'll look at later. So this is the idea that God is intimately involved in their history. There are many examples throughout the Tanakh of the Almighty preserving his chosen people. There are also examples of the people of Israel forgetting the Almighty and suffering because of this, and having to remember him and be developed, delivered. So the story of the history of Israel is told allegorically in the book of Hosea in the Tanakh. Hosea has a wife, Goma, who seems to be regularly unfaithful, but after a period of suffering on the part of Goma, Hosea seeks her out and becomes reconciled. Hosea is the first of the prophets that uses marriage as a metaphor for the Almighty's relation to Israel. So, although he, Israel will often, um, in, in history, have moved away from God, they will always find, they tend to always find their way back, and God is always, or the Almighty is always there waiting for them. The presence of the Lord is intimately involved in every aspect of their lives. Now, I'll talk more about Hosea next week, but it's interesting that actually the story of Hosea is an allegory. And as I read it, it doesn't, is Hosea a real person, a historical person who lived? Doesn't actually matter in some ways because it's the story and the allegory that goes along with that that's important. And Jews kind of understand that. And maybe we can learn a little bit from that. If you look in the Bible dictionary, though, if you look under Shekinah, Um, there is an entry that says the presence, a word used by the later Jews and borrowed from them by Christians to denote the cloud of brightness and glory that marked the presence of the Lord, as spoken of in Exodus 3, Exodus 24, 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 6, Matthew 17, which I think is the uh, transfiguration, and Acts 7, which is the stoning of Stephen. The prophet Joseph Smith described this phenomenon in connection with his first vision as a light above the brightness of the sun. And he saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing in the light. So this is really interesting because it's associating the Shekinah or the presence of the Lord with the first vision. And we know that no one is able to um, see the face face of God and live without um, the strengthening and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so is this symbolic of that pillar of light, so to speak. So there is kind of a relationship. And I I think we can look at Shekinah from a purely Jewish perspective, where God is intimately involved in every aspect of their lives. But we can also, I've used that as as kind of a springboard for study to understand more about the presence of God within my life. Another really interesting aspect of Judaism for me is is scripture study. So I have a friend um, called Brad Kramer. Um, He's written um, Beholding the Tree of Life, a rabbinic approach to the Book of Mormon, I think. And when I've taught this course before, he's come along and and kind of given a session about um, reading um, scripture um, rabbinically. And he uses the example of two trains. So I picture, for example, a a fast speed, high speed train. And then there's also a steam train, so Thomas the Tank Engine type thing. And Thomas the Tank Engine is very slow and you're able to take in kind of the surroundings because you're ambling through the countryside. Whereas the intercity, the fast train, is designed to get you there as quickly as you can. And I think we have both approaches within the church. Um, If we look at, for example, the Come, Follow Me, we will often study five or six sections in a week and kind of summarize all kinds of stuff. And we're we're, we're zooming through and we're trying to understand. Whereas the rabbinic approach, and and, and Brad goes to his local uh, reform synagogue and studies scripture with them every Saturday, and they will take a verse and they will discuss that verse for an hour and a half. So maybe some of the Hebrew that surrounds it um, or is the basis for it, or how that's lived, and everything else. And so they will take a very slow approach through the Scriptures. And I think both approaches have their merit, but I think sometimes all I've ever done is Zoomed, and maybe I'll stop at a station every now and again and stop and think, well, how does this draw me closer to Christ? But over the last year or so, I've been looking at, at um, an individual verse, and stopping and thinking and studying. And sometimes that verse will take five minutes to study. Sometimes that verse will take an hour to study, or maybe an hour hour one day and an hour the next day, because it's kind of sent me off in different directions to try to um, understand. And I think that may be a lesson for us as Latter-day Saints to just stop and breathe um, when we study scriptures. I think also we can, we can consider the idea of Shekinah when we consider the festivals that Jews celebrate or remember. Um, and a lot of them are surrounding times where Jews were persecuted or um, there were issues going on where they were victimized and they were able to come out victorious or safe. Essentially. So one of them obviously is Pesach or Passover, which remembers um, the time of Moses and the Exodus. And we have the 10 plagues. But when we look at the Passover Seder plate, we will see um, food that reminds Jews of the events. So, for example, um, they'll use um, a roasted bone, a roasted lamb which reminds um, Jews of the Pesach offering or of the, of the lamb that was sacrificed. The hard boiled egg that reminds me of the festival offering brought to the Holy Temple. And there's horseradish and the bitter herbs that symbolize the harsh suffering and bitter times that were endured as slaves. The haroset that, that resembles the bricks that's made of apple, walnuts, and, and wine. And that kind of represents the mortar Um, when they were forced to work as slaves. Um, Karpaz, which could either be parsley or, or potato or onion, which is dipped into salt water to remember the tears. And then hazaret, which is lettuce, that again is part of those bitter herbs. And so we look at the way that Jews celebrate it, and it always remembers the events of the time and also how, if you like, merciful the Almighty has been in delivering his chosen people. One of my um, favorite stories is of the story of Esther, um, which is celebrated at Purim. And um, Esther was a Jewish girl who lived in Persia at the time, and she became uh, queen. She married the king. But, there was kind of an evil, um, what's the word? There was an evil advisor to the king who was called, and I'm just trying to remember his name, it begins with an H, um, Haman, or Haman, Haman, Haman. And he established laws that meant that the Jew, that he had established a day where the Jews were going to be put to death. And Esther's uncle, or Mordecai, came to her and said, you've been put into this position for this purpose. You have to save us. And so at the threat of her own life, Esther approached the king and kind of exposed Haman as um, someone who was horrible. And Esther was able to save her people by standing up. And this is remembered at Purim. And the story is told, it's a very... Loud and, and, and vibrant festival. And the story is often told in, in synagogue. And if you're in synagogue and hear Haman's name, then rattles are rattled and feet are stamped and tables are banged whenever Haman's name is read out because you don't want to hear his name. But it's also a holiday of, of, um, of sweets and so on. But again, it shows the involvement of the Almighty in the lives of Jews. Now, if you're interested, there are um, examples of. Uh, musical groups such as the Maccabees and um, I'm trying to think of them, 613 Sings um, who have done actually songs that fuse the the story of Purim and also of other festivals and Hanukkah and more and also um, the celebration and so you can just give those a quick google on YouTube if you like and you can see kind of them singing and how those festivals are celebrated. Those. If you like, those stories are celebrated today, and they are seen to be evidence of God's favour, if you like, and that that they are the Almighty's chosen people. But there is um, a more recent example of persecution and horrendousness of the Holocaust of the Shoah. And... Yes, we can study Judaism and we can learn about Judaism without um, a study of the Holocaust. Of course we can because uh, Jews are not defined by the Holocaust, but it is is a horrendous act which perhaps helps us understand more how faith can be maintained even in the face of such horrendousness. And there's books that have been written. So many of you will be aware of Anne Frank, which is more a kind of historical narrative. But there's other books like A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which, is, uh, which just helps us understand Viktor Frankl's kind of search for meaning, obviously, through the events. And then there's a, the Elie Wiesel um, trilogy, Night, which kind of ex- explores that as well. And there's also a, a comic book, which um, a friend of mine um, lent to me, and it, it's called Mouse, or Morse, which is kind of, it's a, it's a retelling of the Holocaust, but with mice and with, with others. And you would, it sounds as though it trivialises it but, it, but it actually helps tell the story and helps us understand kind of what was taking place. So there's lots of different things that are out there. One of, the, one of the passages or one of the remembrances of, of this time that is inspiring to me anyway is by a man called Hugo Grin. Hugo Grin is a rabbi and he had a radio show and he's written a book called um, Three Minutes of Hope. And he talks about the celebration of Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is obviously the time where Judah the Maccabee was able to um, reclaim the temple. and But when he got in, there was only enough oil for the light in the temple to last one day. But through some kind of miracle, it was able to last over eight days. And so you will have seen the eight-sticked candelabra with one in the middle as well, which is lit on every evening of Hanukkah. So again, is an example of of, um, the Almighty's love for um, Israel. So he remembers a time when he was in a concentration camp and he was taken to the concentration camp with his family and his father as he got off the train told his son Hugo that he needed to say that he was 18 and the reason that he needed to say that he was 18 he later discovered is that the children were taken off elsewhere and there's a strong possibility that he would just have automatically been killed So he's in these huts in this concentration camp, and he says, from our less than meager rations, we saved our margarine. From bits of wood carved out bowls for oil lamps, and out of blanket and uniform threads fashioned wicks of a sort. Then on the first night of Hanukkah, in our crowded barrack room, the melted fat in its place, we sang the blessings about God's miraculous saving power. And then disaster, margarine doesn't burn. It just fizzled out and my anger over precious and seemingly wasted calories and the less than good-natured teasing of non-Jewish fellow prisoners, though I was then a middle-aged 14-year-old, I burst into tears. My father, who also saved his rations and whose idea the celebration was in the first place, and without whose support I would certainly not be alive to tell this tale, tried to comfort me. You and I, he said, have seen that it's possible to live as long as three weeks without food. We once lived almost three days without water, but you cannot live for three minutes without hope. And just just the whole experience and, and also that kind of last line just helps me understand a little bit because I've not gone through anything near that at all. But just the idea that we can face life with hope and we need to find that hope in our daily lives. So I've kind of gone I've only explored a small amount of Judaism. There's lots more to explore. But I've chosen things that have inspired me and helped me understand Judaism more, but also things that help me understand my faith a little bit more as well. And, and that's kind of really what I've been talking about. An hour cannot do Judaism justice, but it is something that will hopefully spark your interest and help you understand more about our Jewish brothers and sisters, but also in turn. Understand more about ourselves as well. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to let me know. I'm always happy to respond. Um, you can contact me through my website, which is jamesdholt.com. There are slides and, and things that, and readings that go along with each of these podcast episodes that can also be found on my website. Um, next week, we will be looking at Um, Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma and we'll explore what those words mean Um, and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. So I look forward to seeing you then.